And it's a really good opportunity for us to, you know, step out of the basement, if you will, and interact with our colleagues and let them know like what we're up to and how, how we can help them make the best decisions for their patients. Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strink. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. With so many new laboratory tests coming out, it's becoming more important to make sure these tests are used appropriately. And one way to do this is to utilize pathology residents as laboratory consultants. My guest today is Dr. Jonathan Jacobs. Dr. Jacobs is a pathology resident and the co-author of a recent paper on this very topic. Today, we're going to talk about Dr. Jacobs' career so far, and then we'll talk about the project on which this paper was based and how it benefits the pathology resident and also the patient. All right, here's Dr. Jonathan Jacobs. I know you're currently a pathology resident, but let's go back to kind of the beginning of, of, of that. So kind of who or what inspired you to become a doctor? Well, um, I've always liked to learn how things work. And actually, you know, when I started undergrad, I wasn't really interested in becoming a doctor. So I actually started undergrad in mechanical engineering And uh, I thought planes were very cool. But as I went through undergrad, I had a couple of friends who were doing the uh, undergraduate uh, emergency medicine courses and becoming EMTs. And they were telling me about how cool it was. So I got involved with that. I got a minor in pre-hospital medicine and started taking those courses And one of the doctors there, I actually don't remember his name, unfortunately, uh, but he was previously in the Navy. He was very energetic and he was very passionate about what he was doing with specifically pre-hospital medicine, but just everything in general. He was fun to work with. The work we were doing, the classes I was taking was interesting. So that's how that got started. And then I switched from mechanical engineering to biomedical engineering. And I found that to be pretty fascinating as well. Um, Mm -hmm. I remember pretty distinctly learning about like a giant squid axon and basically how we learned how, you know, uh, chemical potentials like the sodium and potassium flowing across a semi-permeable membrane can create an electrical current and that leads to the basis of neurons working and we got to model that type of thing in matlab so that was just fascinating and i realized that the body is and cells in particular are little machines and they're all responding to stimuli all the time And that was cool. And I just wanted way more of that. And that's how I ended up uh, interested in medicine. You know, you're probably the third or maybe fourth person that I've talked with on this podcast that had started in mechanical engineering or or Mm. some type of engineering. So that's, that's interesting. Like there's some kind of, there's some kind of link there that I, I probably should explore a little bit more, but I think there is. I think that the human body is a big 
system and everything works together. Mm -hmm. And when you learn about those intricacies and the relationships between all of these things, it, it becomes like a big problem to solve a big, maybe an equation to balance, if you will. And I think engineers or people who have an engineering mindset enjoy that. Okay. That makes sense. It, it, it seems like a similar mindset to what a pathologist would have as far as kind of solving the, solving the problem or, you know, figuring out the mystery. It's, it, it's sometimes. Mm -hmm. All right. So you then, you said you switched from engineering and into what is, would it be pre-med, I guess? Yeah, I decided a little bit late in undergraduate to go into medical school. So I didn't do any like, I guess, because of engineering school, I kind of had most of the prerequisites already um, oh, sure. through, through that track. So that was very helpful. And I did need to take a couple classes after I graduated. And actually, I had, um, I took about five years in between medical, I mean, undergraduate and medical school, because I decided a little bit late. And I know that it's not all about like learning how neurons work in medical school. I got a job as an EMT in Cleveland, Ohio, where I'm from, to get more of like the personal aspect of it, to interact with patients, to take histories, and also, I just kind of enjoyed the emergency medicine aspect of things. Um, so I thought that was a good way to transition into medical school. And it did help. Sure. Yeah, I bet it did. That that sounds like a really good experience. And it sounds like you enjoyed what you were doing. I did. Yeah, I thought it was very interesting. I was only an EMT basic, so it was uh, a very entry-level position. But I was working with paramedics all the time and emergency medicine doctors, and they were all very interesting and very knowledgeable people. And so that is one of the things that I thought I was going to end up doing. But through a many series of events, I ended up as a pathologist. And I, you know, really enjoy my job now. <laughs> while you while you were working as an EMT, did you ever think about, okay, I'll just I'll just keep doing this. Like this is satisfying and I enjoy doing this and I'll just, th this will be my career. As an EMT, I did consider going for uh, becoming a paramedic, but mm -hmm. I guess I was thinking about the economics of that decision in terms of time to become a paramedic, uh, money, how much that school would cost and what I wanted to do in the future. Uh, because that job being a EMT basic and being a paramedic, it was very physical. There's a lot of lifting of uh, patients into and out of ambulances and equipment and things like that. I'm saying that probably with the hindsight, with hindsight being 2020, but it, it didn't seem like a super sustainable job. And what my thought was, well, if I'm going to go for healthcare, I guess I should just go all the way and learn everything that I can. And to me, that was becoming a doctor. Okay, that makes sense. Now, I have to think then going into medical school that emergency medicine was probably top of your list as far as specialties. Is that is that right? It, it was. I was. I was definitely thinking about emergency medicine for sure. And 
I was going in with an open mind as well. I wasn't like set on emergency medicine and I considered a lot of different things like general surgery. I did a three week mini rotation in between first and second year, the summer between first and second year. And I was quickly able to rule that out of just was it for me. And ophthalmology, that was another possibility. And then like I liked internal medicine as well, because it was just so broad. And there's a lot of things that you can do in internal medicine. And actually, that's where I ended up in an internal medicine residency at the University of Maryland. So I mean, I think that was because there wasn't a lot of exposure to pathology for me and for a lot of other medical students. It was mostly like histology in the first year, and then the pathology mm-hmm. residents would come and teach us in our second year pathology course. Uh, but, but aside from that, there were no rotations and there was no um, you know, explanation of like what pathologists actually do. Okay. I see. Yeah. I've heard that from other people and that it sounds like that's a really big problem. How far did you get in the internal medicine residency? Did you complete that? I did not complete it. I um, found out pretty quickly that internal medicine wasn't, it's a good field, but it just wasn't for me. And I could see myself probably getting burnt out in it. And I was just generally unhappy with not really the the topic like medicine that was interesting and it was kind of fun to consider the pathology that was going on in the patients and how to treat them. But I think that the everything else surrounding that job made it extremely challenging. And for everyone who is an internal medicine doctor, like I commend those people for doing what they do because it's very difficult and you have to know a lot. But I just didn't think it was a sustainable thing for me to do. I don't think I would be happy doing that. So what happened was uh, I found that out pretty quickly within the first, I would say, month or two of my first year of Mm -hmm. internal medicine residency. And I was lucky enough to match at the University of Maryland, where several of of my friends matched as well in different programs. One was Linda Song, who's a pathologist who's graduating now and going on to do a blood bank fellowship. And so I was talking with her, and she was very happy with her choice, and she was explaining to me what pathologists did and what the residency was like. And, um, you know, I think that triggered some positive memories that I had from medical school. So I decided to try a rotation during residency. So it was just two weeks long. And uh, my program director was nice enough to make that happen for me. And after those two weeks, I decided it was a worthwhile thing. And I went for it and, and it turned out very well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like it. Now, how, how does that work as far as the timing though? Because you've already started the year in internal medicine. 
could, could you like immediately switch into pathology or did you have to wait for the following year to start? If that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. I had to wait for the following year. Um, okay. I learned a little bit about how to quit residency, which was very stressful after mm. you go, after you match and go to your residency, you are not allowed to quit, I believe for 45 days. And then after that you can. So one option was to just quit and leave the residency program, but I didn't think that was the right move. So I finished out the year. I did the entire intern year at the University of Maryland. And um, actually, I think, you know, as challenging, uh, like emotionally and physically that that was, it was really great context. And I learned a lot of medicine and I met a lot of people who I still interact with on a regular basis as a pathology resident. So overall helpful. I don't know if I would recommend it though. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. yeah, I, yeah, I can understand that. <laughs> All right. So now if I, if I did my math correctly, you're, so you're coming to the end of the, your third year of residency in pathology, right? Correct. Okay. And I think I read that you're going to be the chief resident. Oh, it, I am at the end of my tenure of oh, okay. being a chief resident. Yeah. So we do our chief year in the third year of residency. Oh, okay. Is that okay? <laughs> yeah. Where I work, it's, it's in the fourth year. All right. Yeah. I think, um, here it's in the third year. So your fourth year is, uh, more devoted to studying for boards. And I think you do have enough experience after two years to know the process or the logistics of the of all of the rotations and the residency, and you know the people as well. So I think it's a it's a pretty good strategy for that. Yeah, it actually makes a lot of sense. So you've got more time to study for boards. So, mm -hmm. I mean, that's kind of the entire point, isn't it? Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about then as you're going into the, the fourth year. Uh, do you have plans for like some specialties, fellowships, things like that? Yeah, I have lined up a cytology fellowship, and that will also be at the University of Maryland. And so I'm very excited about that. And I guess what I intend to do with it um, after I graduate would probably be a general sign out. Um, so a surge path with probably some cytology mixed in, but we'll see where I end up. I'm not 100% sure what that's going to look like. Okay. What is it about cytology that, that uh, interests you or, or kind of drew you in that direction? I think it's equally broad as pathology in general. So you're not limiting yourself by studying a particular organ system, which is nice. You get a little bit of hands-on time with patients doing fine needle aspiration. So that's fun. It's a very specific and directed patient encounter, and I find that enjoyable. And then it's also kind of immediate. So you can look at the cells, you can make a diagnosis right away if you don't need stains. And then also it just makes you a better pathologist because with cytology, you take away the architecture that can help you make decisions. And so you really have to focus on the fine details of the cells that you're looking at histologically 
um, to make decisions about whether it's benign or malignant and what it is. So I think it's just a, it's a great skill to have in your toolbox. Okay. Yeah. Those are all really, really great points. I like that a lot. All right. One more thing in, before we get into uh, the the paper that you co-authored. So you run the unofficial Twitter and Instagram pages for the University of Maryland Pathology Residency Program. And I'm curious why you think, because there's a probably most residency programs nowadays have an either official or un, unofficial social media accounts. And I'm curious why you think that's important or, or why, I guess first, why do you think that's happening and why do you think that's important? I think there are several reasons why pathology needs um, like a social media presence. I think, you know, as we were talking about pathology is kind of, uh, uh, I would say one of the best kept secrets in medicine um, as far as careers go because most students don't know about it and they don't know how fun and interesting and also how integral it is to the hospital itself. Like we're kind of behind the scenes, but we really make decisions that affect patient care. So I think it's important to make it not a secret anymore that pathology is a great career. And uh, I think more people should be applying to it. so one of the ways to do that with a pretty low you know, barrier to entry is all these social media apps that we have, like Instagram and Twitter. They make it easy to get the word out about that. And then pathology is really well situated for those media because it's a visual specialty. So mm-hmm. we we look at pictures, we look at images all day, and it's pretty easy to take a picture. And uh, in my opinion, um, a lot of the histology that we look at is very beautiful, and it deserves to be seen. And then also, it's nice that um, it's not identifiable. So you can you can look at these interesting cases, and um, you know spread that interest without really harming anybody. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Do you feel that it helps to, I mean, you said it, it helps to promote, to promote pathology, which which is great. And I agree with that. Do you, do you think it helps to promote the residency program as well? Like it draws people into the, the program? Yeah, I think it does. We get a good amount of people reaching out to us, asking us questions about the program itself or how to apply or how to become a pathologist through social media. So I think that is evidence that um, people are out there interested in pathology, and that's one avenue that they can use besides like uh, finding an email somewhere. And so people might be more comfortable with that because it's less formal than sending an email or calling a program or something like that. So yeah, I, I think it is pretty helpful. And then there's also you know, the other aspect of social media where you can talk about life in general or just take a picture of you and your colleagues having fun, doing doing things outside of work. And that's important too, to know that, you know, the pathologists are not just pathologists, but they can also have fun. And uh, we do things as a program together 
sometimes we put we put you know evidence of that online you know to help drum up interest that, that's a good thing to know you can you can be, be a pathology resident and still kind of ha- have a life and do some things that are fun it is quite nice yeah this is the people of pathology podcast with our guest dr jonathan jacobs we'll be right back LabVine is an interactive online learning platform where laboratory professionals learn, develop, and discover by sharing knowledge and building on each other's experience. The platform provides global access to internationally accredited laboratory-specific courses and other resources developed by lab specialists for the laboratory industry. LabVine is free to sign up, and you can use the link in the show notes to get started. Now back to Dr. Jonathan Jacobs on the People of Pathology podcast. All right, so let's get into the paper then. So this was uh, this is in the archives of pathology. And the paper is called "Pathology Trainees Gain a Clinical Pathology Experience as Lab Consultants Through Auditing Myeloid Mutation Panel Send Out Tests." Now, first, I kind of want to want to dig into this because these it it brings up a, a few good points that I really like. But first of all, how did the idea for the project that led to this paper come about? Well, uh, Dr. Koka, the program director at the University of Maryland, uh, is a hematopathologist. And um, this was around of July of 2020. And uh, I think I was in the right place at the right time. I was on a chemistry rotation. And basically, we were talking about this particular test, the myeloid mutation panel send-out test that was uh, being ordered by the hemonc doctors, so the hematologists and oncologists. And um, Dr. Coco was interested in that test in particular because it was a new test, it's relatively expensive, and it was being ordered uh, with frequency. So she thought that that was a good opportunity to audit the test from our end because we could see how frequently and on whom it was being ordered. And we decided to develop some criteria to say whether or not the test was appropriate versus inappropriate. And that's how the project came about in a nutshell. And as far as the time between that happening and like the six month period that you were collecting data, like how much time elapsed there that you had to, that you needed to set everything up. The nice thing about that project was that it was mostly or pretty much all virtual. It could be done electronically. So it didn't take a long, long time to set up, but Dr. Coca, I think prior to July, 2020 was thinking about it and talking to the um, hematologists about it and um, considering how to, you know, talk to them about the appropriate versus inappropriate criteria. And so that's another thing to mention that it it didn't just come from us. We had buy-in from the people who were ordering the test as well. So I think that was really important, and that was spearheaded by Dr. Coca. So once we had those rules in place, then it wasn't terribly difficult to set up the project. I mean, there were some technical difficulties with 
figuring out where to get the data from and where and how to store it and how to visualize it. But that's kind of uh, something that I worked on a little bit with the how to how to store it and what to do with it once we got it. The subheading of the paper, it says hitting two birds with one stone. And I think I know the answer to this, but let's kind of talk about this. So what are the two birds that we're talking about here? Yeah, I, I think that the two birds are training residents to be lab stewards and also improving healthcare, uh, basically by auditing tests and making it, making it a little bit more focused and subsequently saving a little bit of money for the healthcare system. Okay, that makes sense. And that actually, those were the two that I was thinking of. So, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, the kind of the concept of inappropriate uh, lab testing is is a big deal right now. I know ASCP has a has a uh, big push for looking into that in some other organizations as well. So this is pretty timely as, as far as that goes. I agree. Yeah, it was a fun project to work on, and I think it was it was pretty useful. And um, what we found was that we saved um, quite a bit of money by canceling mm-hmm. those inappropriate tests. We compared our six month um, audit to the six months prior, where there was no audit, and uh, we saved around sixty thousand dollars just in in that test in particular just in one test for for a six month period of time yeah for only six months it's not that long wow yeah that okay that the the implications of that are are amazing right and that molecular testing is only going to get bigger i think it's there are only going to be more molecular tests all right now you said that the the clinicians were on board with this when you started like you had you had spoken to them that this you we're going to start this project, right? Yeah, there was communication between us and the clinicians. So while they were aware of it and they were okay with it, but they probably weren't super happy about uh, being audited. I I don't think I would if my decisions were being watched. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now I know you you go through this in in some pretty good detail in the in the paper, but can we kind of give kind of a brief summary of of how this worked? Sure. So our electronic medical record, Serter, uh, and we also used Epic. Um, so a resident would go to Serter in the morning and the afternoon, and they would look at the tests that were ordered and on which patient those tests were ordered. And then they would go to the patient's chart and do a brief chart review and see if the test looked like it was being ordered for one of the criteria that we had put in place. So if it was a a myeloid malignancy, you know, and the test was indicated, the test would be allowed to go forwards. If it was for something else, like a, a, lymph, a lymphocytic type thing, then we would basically, uh, my strategy was to tell Dr. Coca or another hematopathologist attending about it first and say, and just double check that it was indeed inappropriate. Um, and then we would reach out to the clinicians 
and uh, basically have a discussion with them about what their thinking was behind ordering that test. And based on that discussion, we would either go forwards with the test or we would cancel it. Okay, I see. And did you get much pushback from the clinicians? Uh, I mean, as far as uh, like you're kind of questioning their clinical decisions, I guess. Occasionally, um, Mm -hmm. yes, we would. Um, One of the nice things about the project was that it took place mainly over text. And uh, as an introvert, consider myself an introvert, um, it was Mm -hmm. nice to be able to think about what to say and write it down and uh, double check it before I had to send it. So that kind of separated us from the uh, emotional conflict uh, that could have arisen from a discussion like that. But it was all very polite. And if they gave pushback, you know, they had they had their reasons. You know, if they were adamant about it, uh, we would let it go. Because that relationship is important. And sometimes it's more important than a particular test. Okay, so we talked about how this, you know, doing this type of auditing can save a lot of money and save discomfort or sometimes harm to the patients from repeat or unnecessary testing. One of the other reasons I like this project and I wanted to talk to you about it was because it gets pathology more involved in clinical decisions and it gets more, uh, you know, more exposure of pathology residents and pathology in department in general to clinicians, which is, you know, as we've talked about, is very important. And in okay. fact, in, in, I want to quote from the paper, uh, it says integration of pathology residents into these efforts can not only help bridge the lab and the ordering clinical providers, but it can also help shift the view of the lab as a merely a commodity for testing to the modern laboratory medicine paradigm, whereby laboratory professionals serve as consultants to ordering providers. And, and yeah. I think that that's great. Yeah, I think I really think that is the case, and that might be where the future lies in in the lab aspect of pathology. We at the University of Maryland have a pretty big uh, blood bank and transfusion medicine department, and the residents here uh, and in many places also go through transfusion medicine, um, and it's that that in particular is a lot of talking to clinicians about platelet transfusions, blood uh, reactions, and things like that. So in that respect, we're very much like consultants and kind of giving advice to clinicians. But I think that the lab medicine aspect of it, as things get more complicated and as indications for new tests become less clear, that's like a perfect niche for pathology to fill. Yeah, absolutely agree. Did you feel like you gained, because being a, a resident and, and getting involved as, as a consultant, like you mentioned, like that, that's got to be valuable experience that will be helpful to you, you know, later on in your career. Did you feel like just from that six month period of time that you gained that, that kind of experience? I think partly yes. And, and one of the main things that I took from that part of the project was that uh, we have expertise too in the pathology department, 
Um, yeah. And it's intimidating, basically, being a PATH resident as a trainee, talking to an oncology fellow or an oncology attending about this particular test that they want because they are going through their training or they've completed it. So they really know what they're talking about. Um, and then we are challenging them on their expertise with this particular test. So we have to keep in mind that we, you know, we know what we're doing. Uh, we have our very clear mandate with the criteria. And as long as we're polite about it, um, everything went fine. And I, and I think it is just a matter of being polite, um, being firm, but, but also keeping in mind that, uh, you know, we are the arbiters of, of the testing that goes on in the hospital and it's okay to, to question clinicians occasionally and in a nice way. And what about like, like your fellow residents, what kind of, did they have any feedback or opinions about the experience that they had with this project? Was it similar to yours? I think that a lot of residents would prefer to like stick to their lane, so to speak, like um, surge, people who want to do surge path would like to just stay and do surge path. And um, especially like the medical examiner interested people didn't find a whole lot of benefit out of it. But I think that uh, if they took a step back, uh, most of them thought that it was it was worthwhile, but I in particular enjoy um, like data vis- visualization and um, messing with spreadsheets and things like that. So I think I got a lot out of it. I'm not sure that my colleagues enjoyed it as much as I did. Okay, I, I can understand that. That might be sort of the engineer mindset again. Uh, probably. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. All right. So you've got. The project is finished. The paper is published, which, of course, I'll include a link in the show notes to this episode so everybody can can read the paper because it's very interesting. So this is sort of a proof of concept. Do you think this kind of like audits, would, would that work with other lab tests? Yeah, I think it, it really would because molecular testing, PCR testing um, is becoming more complicated and more expensive in certain aspects. There is a particular test called the Carius test, which is a microbiology test. There, uh, it's a PCR, or actually, I'm not sure what it's based on, but it takes cell-free DNA of bacteria, fungi, and viruses, and it's a blood test. Uh, it costs about $2,000 to run one test per per patient. Uh, so that's very expensive. And it will get the answer that the clinicians are looking for pretty much right away. It's just one test. It's not that hard and it's only blood. So it's not invasive either, which is great, but it's really expensive. So it's this great test, but it has a pretty big drawback. So in the micro lab, there actually are involved in the process of ordering that test already. So the lab directors have already taken the initiative to become a part of that process and uh, basically decide whether or not 
that that particular test is indicated. And if they think that it is and it's appropriate, they'll let it go forwards. But I, I think that paradigm is going to start happening more and more where these new tests are coming on that do great things, but they're also relatively expensive. So someone needs to think about it uh, before it it gets ordered and it goes through when other cheaper tests might be more worthwhile. You're right. I mean, this the molecular testing in, uh, is getting more compl- complicated and it's probably going to continue to get more complicated. So it's important for pathology and pathologists to kind of stay on top of that and make sure that these things are be d- being done correctly for, you know, for the right reasons. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. And it seems like the project that you, that you've done here in the paper that, that you've written, this is kind of a, you know, this method could be used and probably should be used as more of these things, more of these tests come online. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And I think residents are in a really good situation or place in their career and in their duties to to do that. Um, I think that it, it can be a good learning experience because you do get to interact with clinicians and uh, think about how their specialty works and how it interacts with pathology and how it interacts with the lab. And it's a really good opportunity for us to, you know, step out of the basement, if you will, and interact with our colleagues and let them know like what we're up to and how, how we can help them make the best decisions for their patients. Yeah, right. I mean, the, the the pathology residents benefit because they gain the experience and the confidence of, you know, you know, doing, interacting with the clinicians more. The clinicians have, have more of an interaction with pathology in general, which is always a good thing. Mm-hmm. And and then you know it helps the patients as well. So there's all these great things about what you've done here. I I agree. Thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah. I think that my situation was a little unique because I started in internal medicine. So at the same time I was doing internal medicine, I was forging relationships with a lot of other people who are now hospitalists and or doing fellowship, some of them at the University of Maryland as well. So it's actually been really nice. And I've been doing this sort of thing for several years because when one of those people that I've met in the past has a question about a lab test, sometimes they don't know who to go to, so they'll just shoot me a text. And I think that that should be generalized. There should be somebody available to answer those questions without having to have that um, you know, personal relationship already established. Mm, okay, that that's that sounds like the seeds of an of another project, maybe. <laughs> I'm not sure how that one how we would do that one, but it it would be interesting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, okay, now as as far as at uh, U- University of Maryland, are there plans to expand then on on the results that you've had with this one test? I mean, you mentioned the microbiology test. Are there there others kind of in the works? At the moment, I'm not sure that there are. Um, I think that. You know, they are being developed, these tests, but uh, there aren't too many. And I think it, it's kind of tough to find them as they pop up because there are so many tests 
coming out. So it's it's kind of hard to choose which one. But the MMP audit is still happening. So we are still looking at these tests and um, having discussions with the clinicians about which ones are appropriate and which ones are inappropriate. And uh, the last time I rotated through chemistry, I helped out with that project. And uh, it seemed like for the most part, every single one was appropriate, which was interesting. So it would be interesting to go back after, uh, you know, a couple of years now and find out how, how that has changed over time. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. That, that would be interesting to kind of look back at that. All right. Well, th- this has been a really interesting conversation. I, I appreciate learning more about you. And I, I, you know, I really like talking about this paper and just this whole project. And, you know, I'm all about advocating for pathology, which is exactly what you're doing here. So I, I appreciate your time. Dr. Jonathan Jacobs, thank you very much. Thank you. It's a pleasure to talk. Great big thanks to Dr. Jonathan Jacobs. Here's a preview from another episode that I think you'll enjoy. And then I'll be back with some final comments on this episode. Because this is really meant for medical students, right, to be in their clinical rotations. So instead of going through gram positives, gram negatives, and, you know, looking at the different diagnostic tests like you do for step one, we wanted to really try to cater this to you know, actually what a microbiology lab does. What is important for a microbiology lab in terms of the the blood sample or the, the, you know, the isolate, whatever it is, what's important for that lab. Uh And it's it's definitely tough because it's, you know, right now we're in the middle of a pandemic and all the clinical microbiologists are, you know, basically sleeping at the hospitals working on this. Right. Um, But, you know, I, I definitely worked on the intro part of that and the molecular diagnostic part of it. And we have uh, some other collaborators working on the enteric part and the respiratory part. But, you know, it's it's still a work in progress. And there's also some other things on the horizon, possibly an intro to microbiology, which would be kind of uh, what you could take in order to help you with medical um, or, you know, medical microbiology in general or medical coursework. So that's kind of in the works. You can hear more from Cullen Lilly in episode 28. This conversation and the paper that we talked about as well, it ties in very nicely with the current ASCP Choosing Wisely campaign, which is all about appropriate lab testing. So it's a very timely topic. In addition, you've got the benefits to the pathology resident in gaining experience interacting with their clinical colleagues, and of course, the obvious benefits to the patient. And this helps to advocate for pathology and laboratory medicine, which is something we really need right now. So I hope that projects like this continue and expand in the future. As always, I'll have links in the show notes to everything we talked about today, including this paper, which I think everyone should read. Don't forget, you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at People of Path, or you can connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you for continuing to share the show with others, and together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. And you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening. I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.